Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. morning. Glad that you are here this morning. I, uh, I was wondering how, when you were a child, or maybe if you're still a child, how you react to the expression, uh, wait till your father gets home. Now, as a child, maybe even now, how you felt about that statement probably it did depend on circumstance, right? So if you did something naughty, like uh, put a hole in the screen door or kick a soccer ball through the neighbor's window, both of those I did, by the way, um, while Dad was away, oh boy, um, you, you might not want Dad to come home, right? But if Dad had maybe uh, gone away and promised to bring you something back from a trip, or if you had exciting news to share, like, uh, hey, I got a really good report card, or um, guess what, I'm starting for the football team, something like that, then you really couldn't wait. wait. I can't wait till Dad gets home. Takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Now, I tell you that to tell you this, and that is, it's kind of the same thing with God, right? There's times when He visits, when He comes, and um, it's good, and other times it's like, uh uh-oh. And so, last week we heard about when God visited Abraham and Sarah to reiterate the promise that He had given uh, years before uh, that they would have a son, right? And that even in their old age, 24 years after that promise had been made, even in their old age, uh, that would still be true. God would fulfill that promise because nothing is impossible with the Lord. So here's what he tells them. At the appointed time, I will return to you. Right? I'm coming. About this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And after that promise then from uh, last week, um, You might remember that there were three men that had come. um, And then the men set out from there and they turned towards Sodom. And and God is, and Abraham's kind of there with God. And God's going to pay Sodom and Gomorrah a little visit too, right? Um, They've been naughty. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. In other words, um, if they're doing the things that are being said. right? And if not, I will know. Uh, people are getting hurt. And that's not okay with God. Now the thing is, and you and I know, that God already knows what's going on down there. Uh, the people are being naughty. But God's going to go down there anyway, as a father often does, And um, check it out. And Abraham uh, knows what God's going to find there uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it ain't pretty, all right? Abraham asked God to spare everyone for the sake of just a few righteous people. Um, After all, Abraham's nephew Lot had settled there along with his wife and two daughters. And when the angels come uh, to go into the city, Abraham, uh, his family's there, and uh, he's thinking, oh boy, um, what's going to happen, right? What's going to happen? 
So he bargains with God. He goes to God knowing God's character and he knows God's mercy. And so he begins with 50 people. Okay, If you can find 50, uh, please, please be merciful. Right? You don't want to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Abraham starts with 50. He whittles his way all the way down to 10, right? Uh, and, and keeps uh, asking God, and God in his mercy says, yes, yes, uh, for the sake of, of how this many, I won't destroy it. For the sake of this many, I won't destroy it. And he gets down to 10. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Why does Abraham stop there? I'm not sure. But he probably figured there has to be 10 people in there, uh, righteous people. All right, so you got Lot. You got his wife, you got two daughters, right? Then you got the sons-in-law, and uh, so there's six. So, yeah, we should be good with ten. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because as you know, when the angels get to the town, uh, the people of the town thought, well, let's just say uh, they thought they were going to have their way with, you know, their way with, uh, with God rather than the other way around, right, with, the, with his messengers, The people were very wicked. I mean, people were not safe. People were not safe. God didn't find ten righteous people. He didn't really even find six, if you think about it. The soon-to-be son-in-laws didn't really believe that God was going to do so the warning that comes. They don't believe it. They're like, can destroy the city? Okay. Yeah, right. That's not going to happen. So there's no urgency uh, in regards to them. Uh, you, probably, you might remember Lot himself um, lingered, right? He, he lingered and delayed, right? Kind of like, ah, are we really going to leave our home and everything that we know? And uh, wow. So what happens is God intervenes for the sake of Abraham, uh, for the sake of the prayer, right? Uh, he intervenes. The men seize Lot and his wife and their two daughters by the hand, and the Lord, it says, being merciful to them, brought them out and settled them outside the city. Uh, but this mercy does not totally go appreciated, right? Um, God's deliverance. You remember what happened with Lot's wife. She kind of uh, yearns for, oh man, again. We're leaving our home, everything we know turns back, even after being warned not to, and, and uh, turns into a pillar of salt. And so, um, you know, not really trusting God's providence and deliverance and all this. And same thing with the daughters, okay? Uh, after their soon-to-be husbands died, right, because they stayed behind, because they didn't believe God was going to do what he said he was going to do, um, they kind of take matters into their own hands. They're like... How are we going to have kids now? And despite God's providence, despite God's deliverance, despite God's goodness, wouldn't you know it, they take matters in their own hands and do something really naughty in Genesis 19. Uh, you can look it up if you'd like. Warning, though. Mature audiences only, okay? Yes, it's in the Bible um, if you want to look it up. And you think the culture doesn't influence the behavior, uh, this is a good example of that. Now, should any of this come as a surprise? It's shocking. It's definitely shocking. But 
Should any of it come as a surprise? And the answer is no, it should not. Because the Bible reminds us that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not one. Certainly we see that at play sort of in Lot and his family, right? Really righteous? Hmm. Certainly not even in Abraham. We know he had his issues as well, right? But before he goes to visit Sodom, God points to one who would be righteous. God points to one who would be righteous. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham surely shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen, I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. When God speaks of righteousness and justice, God doesn't speak of Abraham's righteous and, uh, righteousness and justice, but of the faith of Abraham. Of the faith of Abraham that God would keep his promise. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believes God and God credits it to him, regards it as righteousness. He regards Abraham as righteous. He counts Abraham as righteous because of his faith in God. This decision is all about God's mercy, not about Abraham's merit. It's about God's grace, not Abraham's goodness. Salvation will be God's doing, not Abraham's. This promise from Genesis 18 points to one through whom and will come through Abraham's line, through the nation that Abraham fathers, so that all the nations of the world will be blessed through the righteous one. Because of the one, God would spare sinners. Because of the one, God would spare sinners. Not for the sake of 50 or 45 or 40 or 30 or we can go all the way down to 10. No, God spares the world. God spares sinners for the sake of one. Emmanuel, God with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is how it works. Like, how does that work? The prophet Isaiah wrote of one who would live a perfect life, a life of righteousness and justice, a life of, uh, of goodness, but be judged anyway. Not for his sins, but for the sins of God's people, Right? For the sins of the whole world. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And then it points out that this is not our righteousness. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone to his own way. But what has God done? The Lord has laid on him, that is the suffering servant here in Isaiah 53, uh, the iniquity of us all. And so what happened to this suffering servant? Well, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before 
it's sure as a silence, so he opened not his mouth, right? He's not grousing or complaining. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, so people look at that, and what do they think? They don't understand what's happened, right? Oh, he's just a victim of the system. Nope. As for this generation, who considered this? That he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Standing in your stead. Taking your unrighteousness and your lack of justice and your sin and your death all upon himself. Even Isaiah recognizes, the prophet recognizes, people don't, don't always see it this way because we're so used to having to earn things, guys. That's how life works in this world. You've got to earn it most of the time. We're used to having to earn things. There's this movie, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called uh, Invincible, and it follows the story of Vince Papali, who was a substitute teacher and bartender, uh, 30 years old, uh, in Philadelphia. And his beleaguered NFL Eagles um, were going through a rough patch, right? And so they do something unexpected and sort of um, what everybody thought it was going to be a, pub a publicity stunt. They hold open trials for the team, right? You want to try to make the team... We've got open tryouts. Come on and try out. And he was encouraged to do so. Now, to everyone's surprise, not only <laughs> does he catch the eye of Coach Dick Vermeil, uh, he gets invited. He actually gets invited to training camp and goes to training camp. You know, and he says to the equipment guy, he says, hey, my name's spelled wrong. He goes, does it really matter? You're not going to be around here that long anyway, Right? He's a long shot. Against all odds, cut after cut, he actually makes the team. A rookie at 30. A guy who'd, who'd, who'd never played even college ball is in the NFL. But Vermeil admires uh, his tenacity and character. And his tenacity and character fits in with Coach Vermeil's philosophy. Now this is a quote from the movie. I don't know if Vermeil said this exactly. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that, that he looked for in players. So here's what he says in the movie. Uh, a team with better character can beat a team with better talent. I believe that. So a, a team with better character can beat a team with better talent. I believe that. He says, you guys are not the team that is short on talent here today, and I swear to you, you will never be again uh, the team that is short on character. Right? So that's what he sees in this man, is, is the uh, character, uh, the ability to work, right? the ability to earn his spot on the roster. He's going to give it everything he's got. The problem is opening day comes, <laughs> comes and then uh, things kind of go off the rails. Right? They're playing the Dallas Cowboys, and Vince has a very tough day uh, in coverage. He makes... He, he does not play well at all. And Vermeil uh, is mortified at how poorly he plays. 
I stuck my neck out for you, he tells him. Play better or you're gone. That's what we're used to hearing. Play better. Do better or you're gone. In most spheres of life, right? Now, Papali does improve. He does stay with the team. He actually plays for the, for the Eagles for three seasons, believe it or not. He becomes a local legend, of course. But his favor with Vermeil and the Eagles, doesn't, it doesn't last. It didn't last forever. Right? Eventually found himself off the roster. Play better or you're gone. With the Lord, that is not the case at all. So that's how we have to understand righteousness. Righteousness is not something that belongs to us. It is something the Lord gives us for the sake of the one truly righteous. It's based on who God is, not who you are. The righteous one standing in your stead. God's mercy through Christ's merit. God's grace and goodness in Christ Jesus. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's about grace. Salvation will be God's doing, not yours. He gives everything for you and to you through our Lord and Savior. He doesn't demand that you play better or get booted from the team. He doesn't need you to secure the victory for Him. He secured the victory for you. And for His sake, God hears you and listens to your prayer. That's why I listen to Abraham. This Savior intercedes and pleads with you before the Father's throne. Your prayers are acceptable and heard on account of Him. Even amid your worst mistakes, your naughty behavior, your failure to take God at His word, He doesn't give up on you. His scars bear witness on the price that He's paid for sin and death and the righteousness that God has given you through Him. We receive it by faith. We receive it by the Holy Spirit, by the means of grace. Just like God did for wayward Lot, right? Most of the time we're kind of like, I'm stuck in here. I'm worried about my life, right? I don't see the judgment. I don't, I don't see the things of God, right? I'm just focused on the immediate. And by the power of the gospel, God takes us by the scruff of the neck, seizes us by the hand, seizes us by the heart, seizes us by the head, and, be, and, and is merciful. And brings you not only outside of the blast radius of God's wrath, but into full access with the Father. Right? Seizes you. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believes God, and God credits it to Abraham as righteousness. Through the gospel's power, we believe God too. And we are righteous on account of the righteous one. Righteous through faith. Through the gospel's power, we believe this from Isaiah 53. By his knowledge, that is the suffering servant, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
Through the gospel's power, we believe God's promise. And Peter's proclamation, right? He connects this, uh, 53, Isaiah 53, to Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, Peter said. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. You don't have to play better or you're gone. You don't have to worry about your righteousness. Look to Jesus, the Lord, your Lord, and your righteousness. Amen. And may the peace which surpasses all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.